0: Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of child abuse and neglect that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13.
1: 24-year-old Karen Robidoux held her 10-month-old baby boy Samuel to her breast and encouraged him to suckle. She rocked back and forth, telling him she loved him.
0: Karen was a member of a small, devout religious sect based in Attleboro, Massachusetts, less than an hour from the bustling city of Boston.
1: The group believed that their members could be blessed with direct messages from God. A member received a prophecy instructing Karen to feed Samuel only with her breast milk.
0: She clutched him tighter with tears in her eyes and prayed that her body would produce some more milk to fill him up.
1: Samuel cried in frustration. Karen was pregnant again, and her milk supply diminished. It had been over a month since the infant had solid food, and poor Samuel only had a few weeks to live.
0: Unfortunately for him, this suffering was commanded by God.
1: Hi, I'm Greg Polson.
0: And I'm Vanessa Richardson.
1: And this is Cults, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other originals from ParCast for free on Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This week, we'll focus on Roland and Jacques Robidoux and the Attleboro sect. The group shied away from all secular systems, including the healthcare industry. We'll discuss how this distrust of medical care came to have disastrous and tragic repercussions for sect members and their families.
0: Next week, we'll broaden our lens to see just how the cult's reliance on faith healing and prayer, instead of medical intervention, led to accusations of murder.
1: We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Roland Robidoux was raised by his parents in the Catholic Church. He had always been devout and considered himself a God-fearing man.
0: By his 20s, he worked as a door-to-door salesman in North Attleboro, Massachusetts. He enjoyed listening to the radio as he drove around.
1: It was a Sunday morning in the early 70s, and Roland flicked his car radio from station to staticky station. His dial landed on a talk show called The World Tomorrow.
0: Roland heard the voice of the charismatic fundamentalist preacher Herbert W. Armstrong deliver his fiery sermon. Armstrong talked about his Old Testament-based group called the Worldwide Church of God that claimed to be the one true faith.
1: Armstrong's church held strict and conservative beliefs. Congregants didn't participate in many aspects of average American life, such as voting, celebrating mainstream Christian holidays, or serving in the military.
0: The group saw success as an indication of God's approval. The well-to-do preacher used his prosperity as evidence that he was fit to rule over his loyal followers in the Christian utopia.
1: Roland felt invigorated and knew he'd found a new direction in life. Just months after hearing his first radio broadcast, Roland cut ties with his Catholic past and started attending local meetings of Armstrong's group.
0: Rowland was an enthusiastic convert and believed in Armstrong's message, Hook, Line, and Sinker, according to Brian Weeks, another Worldwide Church of God member who had befriended Roland and his wife, Georgette. In
1: 1974, Roland became so taken with the message that he became a minister. He led small groups to discuss Armstrong's fundamental teachings. As it was the new disco age, he had ease finding members who longed for quieter, simpler times when things were more black and white, when following God was all they needed.
0: However, by 1978, 36-year-old Roland felt apprehension. He saw Armstrong as too much of an authoritarian. Roland's discontent may have stemmed from Armstrong's extravagant lifestyle. He was known for hobnobbing with world leaders in his private jet, while collecting a tithe of 30% from his followers.
1: Roland and Georgette made the tough decision to leave Armstrong's fold with their five children. They were joined by some like-minded friends, including Brian Weeks. Together they formed a home-based Bible study group called the Church of God of Mansfield, near Roland's home of North Attleboro.
0: Over time, this informal Bible study became more of a church. Roland changed its name to the Church of God of Norton and attracted more defectors from Armstrong's church.
1: Roland's flock numbered as many as 70 people at this time. Perhaps based on Roland's aversion to Armstrong's emphasis on wealth, he preached the importance of simplicity and modesty, always guided by the Old Testament.
0: Female churchgoers wore long dresses and no makeup or jewelry. Men grew long beards. The group believed that pride in one's physical attributes or clothing was sinfully vain.
1: Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or a psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show.
0: Thanks, Greg. While the members of Roland's flock were bonded due to their collective shunning of mainstream customs, it may have also exacerbated their distrust of modern society. An article entitled, Beyond Beliefs, Religions Bind Individuals into Moral Communities, by psychologists Jonathan Haidt and Jesse Graham, states... By making mundane choices into religious practices with widely shared meanings, these laws convert the social order into a sacred order.
1: So when these members of the church dressed modestly and denied themselves any adornment, those collective sacrifices brought them together as a group.
0: And anthropologist Scott Atrin points out, The more you look inward toward your religious group and its claims of virtue, the less you look outward and the more distrustful you are of others.
1: And that's definitely what seems to have happened with the Robidus and their followers.
0: But not everyone was happy with these strict rules that only got tighter. Eventually, Brian Weeks left the church over differences in how Roland ran his overbearing Bible studies. Roland wasn't phased. He only wanted faithful followers. And in 1986, he bought a two-story home in North Attleboro, Massachusetts. That same year, the now 45-year-old Roland encountered an old Catholic school classmate, 46-year-old Roger Dano. Roger and his wife, Vivian, had just separated from a fringe church that practiced speaking in tongues.
1: This meeting led to the Danos, along with their children, joining Roland's group. The families gathered on Saturdays to discuss religious topics together and share in worship.
0: At first, these meetings were peaceful and serene, with everyone exchanging ideas on an equal basis. But over time, Roland began to take more control.
1: The others sang hymns to introduce Roland taking the spotlight to deliver sermons. If a member of the flock dared to question Roland, the congregation would shut them down and said they were controlled by Satan.
0: During these gatherings, though, anyone had the same chance to receive messages from God called leadings. When a member received a leading, they delivered it to the rest
1: of the group. It was usually a benign message. Sometimes it offered some sort of guidance about how to live, such as dietary instruction or calls to pray more throughout the week.
0: But the meaning and importance of these leadings also evolved. Instead of being inspirational messages or counsel, they took on the weight of an order that needed to be followed without question.
1: And with that came repercussions. If a member didn't follow a leading, they were chastised. Roland singled them out, let them know they were wrong for not following God's will, and told them that their behavior was sinful.
0: If the person refused to submit to a leading sent by God, Roland made sure that no one else in the group interacted with them again. They were disfellowshipped.
1: Even though Roland tried to make the group as insular as possible, he still kept ties to the outside world. Since he didn't demand much from his followers, he needed a steady income.
0: When Roland wasn't busy preaching on the weekends, he had his hands full running a successful chimney sweep business. And when Roland's son, Jacques, graduated from high school in 1991, he went to work for Roland.
1: It made sense for Jacques to work for the family business instead of getting a job elsewhere or go off to college, despite doing well in school.
0: Roland wanted his family and followers to interact with the outside world as little as possible.
1: Roland called his flock the Body, as in the Body of Christ. Roland and his followers had no doubts that they were God's chosen people.
0: Roland held his family and congregation tight. To help keep the body strong, the members intermarried, and association with those outside the group was discouraged.
1: In 1996, 23-year-old Jacques married 21-year-old Karen Deneau, the daughter of close friends Roger and Vivian Deneau. Karen adored Jacques. He was intelligent, good-looking, and articulate. He was full of energy and showed much-needed sparks of independence. Shortly
0: after their marriage, he left the family business to launch a window-washing company. Roland was hesitant at first, but was relieved when the dream didn't last long, because Jacques was still firmly a believer.
1: One day at work while washing a window, Jacques received a direct message from God, which added fuel to his already ardent piety. God instructed Jacques to stop working and relinquish his successful window-washing company.
0: Jacques requested that the Lord allow him to finish up with the window he was toiling on, but in a thundering voice, God replied, No. He declared that Jacques had to stop working that second. Shaken, Jacques stopped what he was doing, packed up, and left.
1: In 1997, 56-year-old Roland decided that the now unemployed 24-year-old Jacques was ready to take on a leadership position in the church. Roland utilized all the power he had as the leader of the sect and ordained Jacques as an elder.
0: With Jacques' ascension to church elder, the sect grew more conservative and austere. Their beliefs centered around the leadings that Jacques and his sister Michelle received from God.
1: Specifically, they taught that the entertainment media, the school system, finance, the government, mainstream religion, science, and the medical industry were actually Satan's seven counterfeit systems, tools that the devil used to trick and control the world. At this, the already insular group withdrew further from society.
0: Members' children were then homeschooled and any business, such as Roland's Ash Magic, was conducted with cash, allowing them to avoid using banks.
1: The group threw out any books that weren't the Bible and burned all of their photo albums, which they saw as symbols of vanity.
0: Meanwhile, Jacques enjoyed his new leadership position and was blessed with even more good news. His wife was pregnant.
1: The sect saw Jacques as a golden boy because he was Roland's son. The group believed Jacques was equivalent to Jesus. So everyone knew that his child was destined to be special.
0: On April 29, 1998, God blessed 25-year-old Jacques and his wife, Karen, then 23, with a baby boy. This child, whom they named Samuel, was born healthy and without any complications.
1: Up until this point, the Attleboro sect had yet to exhibit any truly harmful behavior. But that would soon change.
0: Coming up, we'll hear about the Attleboro sect's attempted pilgrimage to find their prophesied promised land in Maine. Listeners, here's a new show I can't wait for you to check out. When it comes to love, every story is unique. Some play out like fairy tales, seemingly meant to be. Others defy the odds to achieve happily ever after. In Our Love Story, the newest Spotify original from Parcast, you'll discover the many pathways to love, as told by the actual couples who found them. Every Tuesday, Our Love Story celebrates the ups, downs, and pivotal moments that turn complete strangers into perfect pairs. Each episode offers an intimate glimpse inside a real-life romance, with couples recounting the highlights and hardships that define their love. Whether it's a chance encounter, a former friendship, or even a former enemy, Our Love Story proves that love can begin and blossom in the most unexpected ways. Follow Our Love Story free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now back to the story.
1: By 1998, 57-year-old Roland Robidoux's small 40-member congregation in Massachusetts thrived. As Roland's power over his followers grew, his 25-year-old son Jacques felt his religious awakening.
0: The more dedicated to the religion Jacques grew, the more blessings he received. His father anointed him as a church elder, he got married, and his baby Samuel came into the world.
1: In June 1998, Jacques Robidoux gathered the group in excitement. It was an unplanned, spontaneous meeting, but he couldn't wait. His heart beat fast with anticipation as he shared the leading he'd just received from the Lord.
0: God had delivered the message to him that he and the entire sect were meant to move to a new home.
1: Their safe refuge was in Maine, and they had to leave that night. Jacques believed that the area was special for them and knew it was going to be their Zion and they were supposed to leave everything behind.
0: Despite the short notice, everyone obeyed.
1: The whole group, which included about 20 adults and 20 children, piled into a convoy of around a half-dozen cars. A road trip from Massachusetts to Maine with that many children and no snacks was already ill-advised.
0: But to top it off, in the spirit of, the Lord will provide, they also decided not to fill up their gas tanks. They were secure in their faith that God would come through and ensure that their tanks were filled.
1: The Attleboro Sex pilgrimage to their new promised land turned out to be a disaster. As vehicles ran out of gas one by one, the flock piled out and squeezed into the still-viable cars. Eventually, all of the vehicles were empty of fuel and stalled on Main's Route 1. And by then, people were hungry.
0: Jacques' sister Nicole told the Boston Herald that at this point, sect members paged through their Bibles, pointing at various passages and using them like a Ouija board, saying this is what God is trying to tell me.
1: She was tempted to gather her four kids and run to the nearest house for help. But her vision wasn't good, and the cult didn't allow her to wear eyeglasses because it was directed by God.
0: As children wailed with empty stomachs, Jacques went from car to car, promising that the Lord was going to deliver them a feast. But that bounty never came. As the hours ticked by, all they found were some berries growing by the side of the road. Besides that, they didn't eat for two
1: days. According to Nicole, Jacques's wife, Karen, was so weak she could barely walk.
0: Everyone was sleeping in crowded vehicles, and Karen had to take care of a fussy six-week-old Samuel. Karen and other mothers were reduced to fashioning makeshift diapers by tearing fabric from their clothing and securing them with shoelaces.
1: In desperation, Jacques called his faithful to gather around a car that had run out of fuel. Using all their remaining strength, the sect members placed their hands on the vehicle and prayed for God to fill the gas tank.
0: To their dismay, the car still wouldn't start. The Lord hadn't provided any gas. Less than three days into this ill-fated trip, Jacques faced the reality that he had made a mistake.
1: He felt that his message to embark on pilgrimage must not have been from God. In his mind, the Lord would never have led him astray. He placed the blame on himself for mishearing God.
0: Fortunately for everyone, someone was looking out for them. Dennis Mingo, a faithful member of the group who was married to Jacques' sister, Michelle, was still close with his mother, despite her not being a member.
1: When she didn't hear from Dennis for a few days, she grew concerned and phoned the Maine State Police. A patrol car was sent out, and within a few hours, they found the stranded group. The sect looked tired and ragged.
0: The officers noticed the crying children and the frustrated looks of their parents. The group was lucky it was June. If it were winter, they might have frozen to death.
1: The officers knew the situation might get dire and offered the group gas money to get home. At first, the sect rejected the funds. If they gave in, it meant that they didn't have faith in the Lord. Nothing could be worse than that. But as the sun started to set, desperation took hold. At that moment, Jacques admitted to the group that his interpretation of the message was wrong. Reluctantly, they took the handout and headed home.
0: The sect hadn't made it that far because a few hours later, they were back home in their houses in Attleboro, Massachusetts. They were only gone for three days, thankful no one died, and they were only a little worse for wear.
1: Jacques reportedly came to believe that the road trip incident, was less of a mistake and instead was given to him by God as a lesson to be learned about failure. The group followed the instructions they felt they had been given by God, only to have the effort fail miserably.
0: Counselor and author Stephen Hassan said when cult leaders deliver a prophecy that doesn't come true, one-third of the group might lose faith. Another third interprets the experience to strengthen their faith. The other third falls somewhere between these two extremes. In the case of Jacques, he used the experience to double down on his faith, and the rest of the sect followed suit.
1: After the failed journey, Jacques urged the group to have more trust in God. And when the sect was introduced to the writings by former nurse Carol Balliset, they were enthralled.
0: Her book Home in Zion found its way to the Attleboro sect through a midwife who assisted in home birth. When she observed the way the group lived, she thought Balazet's philosophy might resonate with them.
1: Balazet once stated, I trust God to deliver babies or heal babies, and to look at the medical system as a source of anything good is simply not within my power.
0: As the sect turned more toward God, they grew more insular and latched on to Balazet's teachings.
1: Balazet's Home in Zion directly introduced the concept of giving birth at home unaided by any expert intervention at all. The only help pregnant mothers had through their fear and pain was the fervent prayers of their fellow members.
0: In addition to prioritizing obedience to God over putting trust in the medical system, part of Balazet's philosophy was born from modesty— She reportedly argued that allowing a doctor to touch women intimately or see them undressed was an affront to the position God awarded their husbands.
1: Luckily for Karen, she seems to have had Samuel before these rules were implemented. Despite his brush with hunger and neglect during the main excursion, he flourished. He was a robust little boy, according to relatives, He had a hearty appetite, and family members said he ate anything that was given to him. He loved Cheerios, peas, and mashed carrots.
0: Indeed, Jacques and Karen's bundle of joy had grown stronger, and by eight months of age in January of 1999, he sat up and even began to walk.
1: And although little Samuel brought happiness and joy to Jacques, Karen, and the other members of the sect, not everybody was as content.
0: Dennis Mingo, previously a fervent believer and loyal to the group, started to have doubts. He'd seen the group becoming more isolated and paranoid, and the adoption of Balazet's Zion birth philosophy seemed like another step in the wrong direction.
1: When Mingo initially came into the fold, he was an enthusiastic and happy participant. He'd married into sect royalty. His wife, Michelle, was Roland's daughter. Mingo took part in the weekly Bible study meetings and didn't feel any doubts that he made the right decision to join.
0: Mingo believed that ever since Jacques became a church elder, the sect was pulled even tighter into more conservative and non-mainstream beliefs.
1: And sometimes they seemed capricious, and it was difficult to understand the point. For instance, one year the whole sect was told they could only eat meat.
0: But according to Mingo, the next year, only an organic, vegetarian diet was permitted. Each of these changes was followed blindly by the devout congregation.
1: But the writings of Carol Balzet had a radicalizing effect on his fellow worshippers that worried him.
0: Mingo said, The book had a profound effect on the group. Every week, they made little changes and became more and more radical. They were basically pulling themselves out of society, and I just couldn't live that way.
1: Additionally, his experience with putting his family through the failed trek to their New Jerusalem in Maine weighed on Mingo. The disastrous trip was hard on him, Michelle, and their five children.
0: They had come out unscathed from the experience, but he couldn't help but think that it had been some sort of dry run for something else to come.
1: Mingo had no desire to experience anything else that could put the health and safety of his family at risk. He started to think that removing themselves from the Attleboro sect was something they should seriously consider.
0: Mingo shared his doubts with his wife and tried to get her to understand what he thought. He felt they should make a clean break, pack up and just get out of Attleboro with their children before things got any stranger or more hazardous. But Michelle was loyal to the group and to her family.
1: Dennis's misgivings created friction between the couple, and he agonized over what to do. Despite his pleas to convince Michelle they should leave, his efforts fell on deaf ears. She remained steadfast to the cult. At his wit's end, Dennis made a weighty decision that affected the rest of his life.
0: Next, we'll hear about a controversial prophecy one of the cult members received from God that changed the sect forever. Now, back to the story.
1: By 1998, the Attleboro sect, led by church elders Roland and Jacques Robidoux, doubled down on their insular beliefs, encouraged by the discovery of the philosophy of former nurse Carol Balazette.
0: But 34-year-old Dennis Mingo, who was married to Roland's daughter Michelle, squirmed under the oppressive thumbs of Roland and Jacques. Despite his past faith in the sect, the increasingly bizarre and sometimes dangerous directives troubled him.
1: In November of 1998, Dennis Mingo left the Atterborough sect and his family.
0: Mingo knew that by removing himself from the cloistered environment of the cult, he would become an outsider.
1: He feared that he wouldn't be allowed to see his children again. He also worried that if they remained within the cult, they may not be safe. But Michelle didn't compromise.
0: It was the most difficult thing he'd ever done but he knew he had to get out and felt that it was the right decision for himself and his future
1: dennis's fear of being shunned was a valid one shunning of outsiders and disfellowshipping is a common trait of cults
0: dr robert lifton a psychiatrist listed criteria to recognize a case of coercive thought he wrote those in the outside world are not saved unenlightened, unconscious, and they must be converted to the group's ideology. If they do not join the group or are critical of the group, then they must be rejected by the members. Thus, the outside world loses all credibility. In conjunction, should any member leave the group, he or she must be rejected also.
1: Which is what Mingo experienced after taking the step to leave his wife and children behind and escape from his life within the Ataburl sect and he knew that his family was still under the influence.
0: In March, 1999, 34-year-old Michelle Mingo delivered a message that changed all of their lives forever. She said God told her that 24-year-old Karen, Jacques' wife and mother of young Samuel, was too vain.
1: Karen was still svelte, despite being pregnant again purportedly with twins. According to Michelle, Karen was too prideful about her appearance and too concerned with taking care of herself.
0: Michelle's sister Nicole said that in comparison, Michelle was overweight and not considered as attractive.
1: Michelle prophesied that Karen needed to follow an austere diet, both for herself and her young son Samuel. Michelle allegedly said that if Karen didn't do this, as atonement for being prideful, the babies in her womb and Samuel would die.
0: Apparently, the Lord had decreed that Karen was to survive only on one gallon of almond milk each day.
1: As for Samuel, who had already moved on to enjoying solid food, he was only allowed breast milk. And the directive was very specific. Karen was told to nurse Samuel for 10 minutes on each of her breasts every hour.
0: Karen and Jacques eliminated everything from Samuel's diet, aside from the breast milk. After only one day of this new diet, little would stop Samuel's crying.
1: Feeling torn and maybe remembering how God's message to him about taking the community to Maine hadn't gone as he expected, Jacques started to doubt Michelle's message. He cradled his baby in his arms, drying the infant's tears, and wondered what God's plan was for his family.
0: Feeling concerned for his son, Jacques allowed Karen to give him some almond milk in addition to his breast milk diet. Jacques figured it wasn't a solid food, and after all, Karen had been told to drink almond milk.
1: Four days later, though, Jacques's father, 58-year-old Roland, found out about the almond milk. He scolded Jacques, telling him that he sinned and disobeyed the word of God. Roland instructed Jacques to withdraw the almond milk from the baby's diet regimen and go back to solely letting him nurse from his mother.
0: Karen, wanting her son to flourish, offered him her breasts as often as she was allowed. Samuel suckled, trying to drink, but was usually unsatisfied.
1: Since Karen was pregnant at the time, her supply of milk dwindled and didn't offer enough to nourish Samuel.
0: After a few weeks, it was painfully obvious that the baby wasn't healthy. He no longer seemed to have the energy to move around much. Things he was formerly able to achieve, like sitting up or standing up, eluded him.
1: It was evident that the child suffered. Karen, who normally bathed her baby boy every day, was so disturbed by his emaciation and sunken eyes that she couldn't stand to do it. She could feel his bones in her hands, and he seemed so fragile that she was afraid he might break.
0: Samuel's appearance and symptoms became more severe and difficult to witness. Jacques struggled, being torn between crying over his son and shutting down his emotions to be strong for his followers.
1: No matter how much he sobbed behind closed doors, when addressing the sect about his son, Jacques stayed cool and collected. He instructed the others to just ignore Samuel's pain and torture.
0: But privately, Jacques questioned Michel's leading. It didn't make any sense to him, but he realized that by questioning the directive, he questioned God, and he knew that he couldn't do that. He trusted in God with all his
1: heart. Jacques became adept at compartmentalizing and just blocked out Samuel's suffering so he could focus on God and the group.
0: He didn't let himself feel any emotions, and that enabled him to follow the leading given by Michelle.
1: The ability to compartmentalize and shut off emotions and empathy is often attributed to people with sociopathic tendencies.
0: According to the Mayo Clinic, some symptoms of this disorder can result in a disregard for right and wrong. A person with this disorder might use charm or wit to manipulate others for personal gain. They might also have impulsiveness and participate in unnecessary risk-taking with no regard for the safety of themselves or other people.
1: Some of that brings to mind Jacques and the journey to Maine.
0: And it certainly sheds light on how he may have been able to follow the directive to withhold sustenance from his son.
1: Meanwhile, Karen, sick and exhausted after about a month and a half of struggling with this test from God, had isolated herself in a private room, so she didn't have to hear Samuel's screams.
0: But once the baby's skin began to discolor, and his eyes periodically rolled up in his head, Jacques knew that he had to do something. Samuel, who was going to celebrate his first birthday in three days, needed his help to survive that long.
1: So, in late April of 1999, Jacques took action. But he didn't take his child to the hospital or even call a doctor for advice.
0: Instead, Jacques called a gathering of his community together to pray for the child. Jacques, Karen, and other members of the cult came together and called upon God to help Samuel get through this trial.
1: The community prayed and cried together, trying to understand what God made them endure. They wondered if this could be yet another spiritual test, like the pilgrimage to Maine.
0: They wanted to help Samuel feel better and to thrive, but knew they had to pray for it to be done within the parameters God had set.
1: The next morning, Jacques gathered his community around him again to share the news. His son, young baby Samuel, had perished. Jacques announced, Samuel is sleeping with God, because God decreed that his mother needed to be taught a lesson.
0: They didn't know it yet, but Samuel's devastating death was the beginning of a horrific and scandalous downfall for the Attleboro sect but it took yet another tragic death to bring it down for good.
1: Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two of the Attleboro Sect.
0: You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify.
1: We'll see you next time.
0: Cults is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Scott Stronick, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Cults was written by Christine Colby, with writing assistance by Giles Hovseth, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Don't forget to check out Our Love Story, the newest Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, discover the many pathways to love, as told by the actual couples who found them. Listen to Our Love Story free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.